Look, you might have noticed, but I love podcasts. I love them for the same reason. I've always preferred radio to television. The pitches are just so much better. But look, one of the few downsides is that you can never find a pen to take something down. So you're going to have to remember this, www.menziesrc.org. That's where you can go to support these podcasts and to help us do more of them by becoming a subscriber to the Menzies Research Centre from just $10 a month, www.menziesrc.org. Have you got that? We're not here just to win an election. We are here to win something for our country. Welcome to the Watercooler Forum. I'm Nick Cater, Executive Director of the Menzies Research Centre. In this edition, Messing with Our Heads, the Impact of the Pandemic on Mental Well-Being. Human beings, as we know, are inherently social creatures who thrive in company and often struggle alone. Yet the extreme social distancing measures we have been forced to adopt are expressly designed to keep human beings apart. Sure, we understand what we're trying to achieve by limiting opportunities for the coronavirus to jump from person to person, but there are bound to be unintended consequences and unforeseen costs, as there almost always are when governments devise novel solutions to complex challenges. We've talked a lot about the economic costs in recent weeks. Today's discussion, though, is about the human costs. Joining me via Zoom is psychologist Dr Belinda Kong, Dr Fiona Martin, who worked as an educational and developmental psychologist before entering federal parliament as the member for Reid in 2019, and Pete Schmeagel, a former senior state and federal political advisor and former CEO of Lifeline. I might just start by talking about what we're doing now, um, Zoom, remote socialising, if you like. Yeah, it's been a, a good substitute for the real thing, and and we wonder what we would have done in this situation without it. But does it really fill the gap? Or is it in our natures to just want physical human contact? Fiona, with your background in psychology, what would you say? Yeah, well, I think technology has been an absolute massive help um, during the pandemic. Obviously, you know, we wouldn't have been able to um, keep a lot of health appointments going if we didn't have telehealth services, for example. But it's also um, an important way of keeping connected with loved ones and members of your family. Just the other day, my son turned 12 years old and we had a family Zoom party, <laughs> which was, you know, um, the only way we could connect um, at the moment. So I think it's very important that technology um, is around, is available and accessible to all Australians, particularly during um, this prolonged lockdown in New South Wales. Uh, and, you know, um, a lot of psychologists uh, and people who work in mental health would have used a little bit of telehealth prior to the pandemic, but certainly the pandemic has forced all of us, if if you know, into using technology more and more. Uh, and I think what it's shown is that it's created um, a lot more. Um, accessibility for a lot of um, patients in the sense that, you know, people who are in remote uh, regional areas who may not have been able to access a specialised psychologist or psychiatrist in the past because of distance can now contact and book an appointment with a specialist in Sydney. And it's seen as more acceptable now. It's not 
um, a replacement for face-to-face -face consultations and certainly it has limitations in terms of establishing a therapeutic relationship um, and certainly there are limitations in terms of being able to do assessments of patients online but it, it is much better than going without ther therapy for a period of time and it's certainly essential during lockdowns because we know lockdowns have an impact not just on um, our sense of connection to people but loneliness and certainly um, it impacts on our mental health. Pete Schmiegel as, as a former CEO of Lifeline and somebody who's involved in a number of mental health charities now um, is 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 the is the overall effect of having all this digital technology at our, our disposal is it good in the sense that we can help people at least uh, to some extent get over loneliness or is it bad in that it separates people? We've read a lot about the effects of social media on young people, uh, how they can feel excluded or, or can feel bullied online, all that kind of thing. It's a big question, but give me your assessment of are we better off now than we were 20 years ago? It is a big question, and it's a very active question in uh, mental health circles, the use of technology in terms of therapeutic relationships and and relieving people's emotional distress. So just on Fiona's point, absolutely. It's extraordinary how telehealth around um, uh, counseling and uh, psychological support has become the norm uh, increasingly. So in March of 2020, the share for telehealth on a national basis of uh, Medicare funded visits uh, was about 3%. Uh, and at the moment, as of April, uh, we're sitting on somewhere near 30%, even higher in places like New South Wales and Victoria, which have been particularly subject to lockdown. And Fiona's right, that extra access is no doubt doing good for people. Uh, but the issue of technology is a broader one. Um, uh, in the same way that technology can deliver uh, greater access, can deliver more services to some folks who are in need, uh, as you mentioned in your question, uh, technology for some cohorts in the community uh, actually goes the other way. Um, so at Lifeline, for example, we once did a survey uh, and we found fascinatingly that social media, uh, the respondents, about a third of them said that social media improved their lives. Uh, they could get access, for example, to mental health information according to social media. A third basically said that it actually made them feel more lonely. And a third uh, didn't have a view, uh, particularly one way or the other way. So my view is that uh, the jury is still kind of out when it comes to technology being either a net positive or a net negative when it comes to uh, mental health care. At the end of the day, you can't replace people with machines. Indeed. Belinda uh, Kong, just, if we could just stick with technology just, just for a second. Uh, in your experience as a consultant psychologist, um, you must be aware surely of, of uh, technology and uh, social media and so forth, creating strains and stresses in people's relationships and, and indeed in their own mental well-being. Uh, what's your assessment of this? So let me con confess, I am of the generation where telehealth is a challenge, right? And I am so used to, like what Pete say, you know, the face-to-face -face and like Fiona said, you know, looking the the client in the eye. I think that as long as we <clears throat> make a distinction between technology as a tool, as an instrument of facilitation, rather than a journey or a destination in itself, 
So, you know, when the, the young people start to compare, I've got uh, iPhones 10 and you got iPhone 6 and it becomes a competition, then I think it has its, it, its problem. But in the therapeutic context, myself and a lot of my colleagues, where we deal with not only, say, depression and anxiety, but psychopathology, suicidal clients, you know, paranoia and schizophrenia. I can tell you it is very, very disconcerting and very stressful for the client and the therapist when the client tells you on, on, on the end of, of the Zoom, you know what, I am feeling suicidal and you start to access their level of society and you find that they have a gun or they've been checking the internet for knives and this and that. What do you do? Do you rush over there and say, normally we would start to talk to them while we get the mental health team in there and things like that. We don't have that facility because you are the other end and they could be in, I don't know, in Emmerdale or something. So I think that it has its limitations in the sense that for serious pathology, I think that telehealth is an obstructive instrument, right? Because once you have the knowledge that your client is suicidal, as a, a psychologist, you also have the responsibility to, to, to give to me. Mm -hmm. I think the government that look at mental health and all that, has to look at where the responsibility for keeping them healthy and keeping them safe, where that, that differentiates. So advantages, we need to be aware of the limitations. Uh, Fiona, to come back to you on this, I think, I think what we should perhaps do first of all is to try and get an assessment of how big the challenge is to mental well-being because of COVID. Uh, and you know, mental health is always often very hard to, to spot and detect. It's, it's often happening inside people's heads. It's not like they turn up at the surgery with a broken leg or something. Uh, so you've got that that obstacle. We've also got, you know, social distancing. A lot of this is happening presumably amongst people who are alone and not having a lot of contact with people. Uh, I, I find, I don't know about you, but the, the statistics around this, mental health statistics are often lag indicators. They often take quite a while to assemble and even then it's not a full picture. Just give me your assessment, Fiona, about about the scale of the problem and the type of the problem that we may be facing now. Yeah, well, I'm, I've recently been appointed the chair of the Mental Health and Suicide Prevention Committee, and we've been doing public hearings across Australia. And the evidence on this is pretty clear that there has been a significant increase in the number of people seeking help during this period, both last year and this year during lockdowns. And I think that um, it's, you know, I mean, the sheer number of phone calls to helplines, for example, Lifeline received um, the highest number of calls that it's ever received in its, in its, you know, its, its existence. Um, but all the psychologists and psychiatrists and GPs and specialist emergency department um, physicians have all said to us that they've had an increase in the number of people seeking assistance at this time. Now, interestingly, we haven't had an increase in suicides, which is promising, but I don't think that we can rely on that because as you rightly pointed out, sometimes the impact 
of um, lockdowns and you know the stress of the pandemic can take its time um, to to play out. So whilst there might be um, urgent mental health issues to attend to right now, we need to consistently provide that service to people over the next, I would say, five years because the impact of the pandemic will last a significant period of time. And the sorts of things that we're going to see are, for example, you know, children who are missing out on experiences in social and emotional development, young children, for example, who would be, you know, meeting certain milestones right now in their social and emotional development. Um, and also, of course, there is just fear of contracting coronavirus in and of itself. People are living with that fear daily. And uh, we're seeing people, you know, burst into, um, sort of anger when they're you know walking or hearing reports of people bursting into anger when they're walking in the streets and someone's not wearing a mask or wearing a mask or whatever you know or um, not you know not complying with certain rules so that's creating a lot of agitation um, in the community people are very fearful of contracting coronavirus and i think that in and of itself and the fact that we're worried about um, our family members particularly um, family members who are you know vulnerable um, in some way, and we haven't seen family. My electorate of Reed is one of the most multicultural in Australia, and my constituents haven't been able to see immediate family members who are overseas. And that in itself has been stressful because some of my constituents have got parents or grandparents in other countries around the world that they really would like to be able to you know help during this time and of course they've all experienced the pandemic as well so there's been a lot of stress and anxiety around being distant from from family members and and close friends it's been a very difficult time i think all around i want to come back to that that uh point about fear because i think this is a very big factor we need to consider uh, separately, but Pete, from your involvement um, with uh, with charities and your knowledge of what's happening at Lifeline, how how extensive is the challenge we face? <laughs> Very, um, and I don't think there's any understating it. And Fiona wisely uh, recognises that there's an element in the emotional distress out there and the mental uh disease out there uh that is stemming from fear of the disease itself and contracting it and its implications and there's also uh, uh i sense and i believe there's evidence to show uh that some of the um discomfort stress anxiety whatever you wish to deem it it's different for different people also stems from the uh, COVID policies themselves from lockdown um as, as fiona said people can't see each other so just to give you a sense of of some of the the kind of structural changes we're seeing in our society as a result of both factors the fear of the disease and the policies that respond to it um, we've seen a 10 percent increase in uh, mental health services across the country from 2019, averaging about 275,000 a week now. Interestingly, Victoria, the state that's been locked down the most, is 40% higher than any other state in those statistics. Um, uh, also, uh, the number of scripts, for instance, that have been issued for antidepressants and under other mental health uh, related uh, prescriptions is now standing at about uh, 800,000 per week, per week. And that is, um, about 10 to 15% higher than what it was in 2019, when it was about 725,000 per week. So I think we need to reflect that 
yes, there is a disease and it brings with it not only physiological and public health impacts, but there are also responses to that disease and how we tailor those responses that also have their own health impact. And the numbers are concerning. Fiona's right, suicide statistics have stabilized. However, Fiona, one thing that the committee should consider is that in New South Wales in 2021, uh, they've actually increased by 4% now. So perhaps that's a sign that uh, some of these mental health factors, we showed great resilience in the early phases of, uh, of the COVID pandemic, but are perhaps now a little bit waning with fatigue, et cetera, et cetera, and something to be very conscious of. We all, we all, we all have, I think, to a lesser extent, felt COVID stress, if you like. We can all identify with, with sudden uh, bursts of frustration or even anger welling up. Uh, it happens to all of us. Uh, so that, that leads me on to the question, Belinda, which you're probably well-placed to answer. Uh, how do we draw the boundary between just sort of feeling bit down in the dumps as, as inevitably you're going to be from time to time at a period like this and actual mental health that for which you need to have treatment and uh, for which the government needs to provision. Nick, that's a very good question. But Excellent. before I go into that, may I address the issues that Fiona mm. and Pete has mm. so you know succinctly brought up? Uh, I'm a I'm a fellow of the American Psychological Association. So I get a lot of data and resources and studies about how the Americans have actually coped with the pandemic and issues that we are now facing because they are about 18 months ahead of us. And I, as I mentioned in the email, I find two studies which actually suggest uh, some positive outcomes and which actually suggests that maybe we should also include why people do not break down and why people in the same environment do not suffer mental health issues, you know, so that we actually have a holistic picture of the whole thing rather than everybody is panicking, everybody is this. And these are two studies. One of them was in America. <clears throat> may, may, I, may I elaborate and study, Nick? Hello, Nick? Yeah. Yeah, okay. So the first study was actually carried out by the, the American Psychological Association in 2020. And this was looking at the trajectory of loneliness during the, the pandemic. And they looked at nearly 1,600 people of which half were men and half were women. And this varies from ages 18 to 95. So they covered a whole spectrum. And fortunately, it was just coincidental. They were looking at them before the pandemic because they were looking at well-being. So they started the, 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 the survey in January of 2020. Then in March, when the White House announced social distancing, they actually uh, interviewed the same people again. And then in April, when there was this stay at home order, right, they examined. So they had the same cohort over different things that we are facing. Now, the general findings are that there is no significant change in average level of loneliness over the three periods. It's a six month period. They found that older adults 
have found some increase in loneliness during the social distancing period, but less in the stay home period, right? And they found also that during the pandemic time, people actually engage more and connect more with uh, phone calls, video chats, and other connections. That was very helpful. And the interesting thing which they did not, the, the, the researchers themselves confessed to be very surprised, older generation reported a higher level of life satisfaction during the pandemic than before the pandemic. The rational being that when their younger generation and their families were busy, they could never get hold of them. They were always traveling or this and that, and mom, sorry, I've got this deadline. Now they know where to find them. Now they just connect with them. And the children also call in and contact with them more. So they found it was a very strong emotional bond. And I think we really need to consider this in the government's policy. The second study- may, may, I, may I ask a question, Belinda, about that study? That was all uh, people self-reporting to a survey, correct? Yeah, this it, 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 it's, it's all quantitative. And as I, as, as I will say to Nick later on, we need to actually conduct more qualitative, more neon studies. But, but my, my point is it's, it's essentially researchers calling somebody and saying, how are you feeling? As opposed to their actual behavior of turning up to a psychologist or asking for a script or calling a crisis line. Sure, sure. But I think the general points that this study was, was, was that at that time in America, when the start of the pandemic, every article, every social media was saying yeah. how bad it was. And when they actually went down and looked at 1,600 people over three different periods, they found that actually it's so qualitatively refined. And the surprising thing is they said that the older people said, actually, I know where my children are. I know where to get hold of them. And I think that- Look, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to challenge the validity of this study mm -hmm. or, or you bringing it up. It's just that there is an element of tragedy taking place in Australia right now that's borne out not by survey work, but by presentations. So for example, in emergency rooms in New South Wales, and I'm based here in Western Sydney, where this mm -hmm. statistic is higher than it is anywhere else, we've seen a 47% increase in teenagers turning up with suicidality in emergency departments. That's extraordinary. That's 7,500 children turning up with suicidality. And I'm not sure that we can somehow say, oh, things aren't that bad. No, 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 don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that at all. In fact, being a psychologist, I see so many society and all that kind of thing that, you know, if I were not to be have my own children and things like that, I would think that half the population is going to go crazy, right? So we also have to look into account the fact that the hospitals, the emergencies and people like us are actually seeing a very, very special, you know, distinctive sure. population. Right? Sure. Yeah. So, so let me get to the second study, which is, and then I will kind of like summarize why are the findings so different from what the, the media is saying, okay? So this second study is actually done for Lancet. And you know, Lancet is a very big medical journal. They actually had a task force and they appointed a lot of the well-known uh, psychologists to do. And they did, they looked at 1000 studies 
who look at depression and things like that. And they also look at the World Gallup poll across 21 nations over 100 countries. So I know it is very quantitative. I'm a, a qualitative researcher myself, so I find statistics don't tell the, 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 the real story. But what they found was that in the beginning of the pandemic, and this is related to when they have winter, the stress level was quite high. Come summer, in the uh, summer of 2020, the, the level of distress and psychological distress was less, right? So we have to take into account, for example, when does this happen? I mean, that all I'm saying is it, it's so fine line, right? But more importantly, what they found was that human beings have what they call a psychological uh, immune level where they actually use their own cognitive level to come up with creative solution to manage their own stress. Like for example, you know, like drive, drive birthday parties, you know, baking and all that thing. And the social connection does not rely on the physical uh, connection. So what they are saying is that and this is what the, the Lancet have found, that people can actually handle temporary changes to their lifestyle, right? And, and not travel and all that, provided they can find a connection and provided they can find purpose and meaning. That people are actually more resilient than what the social policy makers have given us. We have not tapped into their resilience. We have tapped into their distress. And I think there has to be a balance between resilience and distress. Mm. That's mm -hmm. that's my main takeaway. Yeah, um, we are of course dealing with human beings, and 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 every human being is different. And and I guess we have to take pains to try and get to understand who is particularly uh, vulnerable in this situation, who isn't. But but moving on to this sort of overwhelming sentiment, which you feel in the community, you feel it when you listen to talkback radio, you feel it when you run into people in the streets. Fear, fear. There is a great deal of fear out there of the virus. Uh, I think it began in the early days. We had some, some forecasts that uh, fortunately turned out to be uh, much larger than actually occurred, but people could see what was happening. They could see what was happening overseas, etc., etc. It seems to me, Fiona, that what's happened is that uh, politicians, as good politicians do, respond to sentiment in the community. Uh, but in doing so, we got trapped into this sort of cycle of fear in which there's a danger. We, we put aside rational considerations or the trade-offs that are required in every public policy response between, say, uh, you know, the economy and jobs on the one hand and, uh, and public health on the other. Uh, do you think that this emotion of fear has been positive or negative uh, and uh, to what extent now at this stage in the in proceedings can we do anything to calm fears if that's what needs to be done well i think all the way through this it's been a delicate dance between balancing the risk of uh covid spreading throughout Australia and also the uh, impacts of the, you know, policy uh, interventions that required lockdown, social distancing, all the health messaging. It's always been very difficult to balance that. Uh, 
Australia didn't have uh, the sort of a big, um, you know, wave of COVID in the beginning like other countries did. And so we were in some ways, um, uh, we're sort of a victim of kind of our own success in the sense that because we didn't have that impact early on and now we're experiencing, it's kind of hit us hard and fast. And so the fear in the community has, I think, come about because of the fact that we did suppress COVID early on. And now with the Delta wave, it's come on so quickly that that has kind of ignited um, a level of, you know, distress within the community. I know within my own electorate and having spoken to all the mayors and general managers and state members in my seat, um, that the, we're all working very hard across all political persuasions uh, to to reach out to the community to encourage vaccinations and to encourage you know uptake at the moment. We're communicating the Doherty Institute's uh, modelling, which I think is very important. We're translating the information into different languages, which is critical in my seat and read. And we're getting our cultural leaders to to show you know to to take photographs when they're getting vaccinated, for example, um, you know, and to lead um, in this space because it's very important right now that we get as many people vaccinated as possible because that ultimately will lead um, to fewer um, lockdowns and hopefully um, in New South Wales we can get to the point where we won't have any more um, and that's what we're working towards. But we've certainly been working, you know, that fine line between lockdowns and um you know the, the 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 economic impact small business owners in reed is really struggling we're doing a lot of whatever we can do to help and support them i think a lot of people are very grateful for all the government support that's out there for individuals and businesses um and they've been been you know writing in and telling me that they've been very helpful and that they wouldn't be able to get by without that assistance um, but I do think people are still struggling, uh, you know, with, you know, be if it's not health issues or mental health issues, um, they're, they're, they're finding it difficult to cope being in lockdown, not being able to interact, especially young people, I think. Um, Belinda mentioned before about sort of that intergenerational impact of COVID and it seems that maybe perhaps older people aren't feeling it as much. When I call my 94-year-old man, um, she's... Oh, yeah. Nana, yeah, she's quite she's quite happy about you know how her day rolls. Sort of not much has changed for her, um, and uh, you know she she's a very resilient <laughs> woman. Let yeah, me tell you, yeah. having having gone through wars and uh, depressions and whatever else, so she's a very resilient woman. But at ninety four, not much has changed because of the lockdown. But for my young cousins in their early 20s and early 30s, it's having a significant impact on their mental health and on their sense of connection with others. And we knew before the pandemic that loneliness was one of the biggest social issues, you know, public health issues of the 21st century. Uh, it's a significant issue for our society and a big issue for governments to address. Um, yeah. And, you know, loneliness yeah. isn't about just having relationships with a lot of people it's your sense of connection um in that relationship so it's a very subjective measure um and and certainly something that's very important because we know that people that are lonely are more likely to have health issues and particularly mental health issues so it's an important area mm -hmm. of, of mm -hmm. social 
public mm. policy to address. Yeah, yeah, I understand that, Fiona. But uh, Pete, if I could just get stay on this question of what is the fear, the fear of the virus itself doing. You've you've spoken about these alarming numbers of young people reporting to uh, hospitals. To the extent that their their concerns are a fear of the virus itself, and you'd, you'd have to think that that is a factor, uh, shouldn't we be actually going out of our way to calming their fears? So instead of scaring them with ads, trying to scare them into having vaccinations instead of appealing to other emotions, because to do what's obviously a very sensible thing, um, and, and pointing out to them that, that um, under the age of 50, uh, you know, you, it, the chances of you dying of COVID are statistically insignificant. And uh, that, that's the this data is consistent on that the world over. Right. The, 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 short answer, the short it. answer is yes. Um, to, to Belinda's point, we should be appealing to uh, uh, people's sense of resilience as much as their sense of despair, uh, their sense of hope uh, as much as their as their fear. And, you know, Fiona notes that the government is trying to do the delicate dance in the response between suppressing uh, COVID numbers on the one hand and on the other hand, not imposing uh, too many costs or impacts on the community. And I, for one, think the government, both at the state and federal levels, has done a remarkable job of that if you look at it comparatively internationally over the period of the pan pandemic. However, I would venture to say that in the last few months, particularly with the lockdown in New South Wales, um, the political class at its very senior level, and these are all friends of mine, people I've all worked with, and the media class have... Um, frankly, fallen into a fear vortex uh, where it's kind, of a, it's kind of a race to the outermost reaches of fear. So one of the ways that that manifests itself is this absolutely ridiculous notion of univariate analysis around policy in COVID. So the only number that seems to matter is, are COVID transmissions up or are they down? So today, for example, you know, the media is screaming in hysterics that we're at 360, an all-time record in New South Wales. Well, maybe somebody should step back in the political class in particular and point out that those 360 new transmissions are 0.37% of everyone who got tested yesterday. 95,000 people got tested anyway. Let's put that the other way, to Belinda's point about resilience and hope and glass half full. 99.67% of the people who got tested yesterday do not have COVID, right? And so perhaps in our design of strategies, we need to think about how do you build in um, that positivity? How do you build in that hope? For example, the lockdown here in my own suburb, I can't leave. What we've been told by the police minister is that we have to sit in our houses and we'll give you helicopters, Rather than actually work, rather than actually working with the community, including the called community, including communities uh, affected by post-traumatic stress from war zones, in the way that Fiona is in her own seat, to say, how do we design strategies that genuinely work? I, I agree, Harpin, and I think Nick, to get to your point, I think the idea of being social and connected is a biological instinct. Right, is what makes us human. Is what makes us have sex and, and reproduce. Right, and then we have the other existential anxiety. Right, fear, which is to keep us safe. You know, you get a tiger, you run. Right, so we are actually dealing with two very biological instincts: one to survive, and one to procreate. 
Now, I, I mean, I'm putting it very gross level, right? Now, if the government has been focusing on the fiscal distancing as a safety measure, you know, medical otherwise, and then you have people that says, but I need to see my grandmother, I need to know she's well and everything, you will get people breaking the rules because that need or connection is so strong. Now, when I mentioned about resilience and all that, and I'm glad Pete put up this point, because when I see clients and I see a lot of teenagers, Pete, the first thing I do when they walk through the door, I go up to and I shake their hands. And I say to them, thank you for coming to see me. Because I know it takes a lot of courage to actually say, I need help, right? And then when they tell me that they're suicidal and that this, and I say, that's one part of you. I would like to talk to the part of you that didn't commit suicide and are sitting right in front of me and telling me I need help. Now, in a very large way, we need to reach out, like Pete said, we need to reach out to the 99.9% .9 that actually did contract COVID and said, my goodness, how did you avoid contracting COVID? And I think from that point of view, the media has a big responsibility to show good news story. We hear bad news stories all the time. We had, and then we see, and I, I, I get very, very upset. I see the journalists haranguing the premier, Brad Hazard and Dr. Chen, they're doing their best, right? And all they do is, I got you moment. You did not announce these numbers yesterday. These numbers are actually two more than you said, right? Mm -hmm. How about Premier, you're doing well? I would like to see a journalist, and I've said that to you many times, I would like to see a journalist or a communist or a commentator with a very good EQ that says, you know what, Premier, we're on all this together. How can we collectively promote a positive message to the community? Not the Western Sydney community, not North Shore, as a community. How, so, so the media, and the commentators have a collective responsibility to make people feel less fearful. It's not just the government, it's everybody. Well, here, here's some good news. Here's some good news. Um, since January 1, we've had, I think, roughly 12,000 cases and, uh, and still uh, less than 40 deaths. So we're talking about a fatality rate there of about 0.5%, which is very low, and it's lower than it was last year. So we're safer. I mean, we are we are manifestly uh, safer in that we've got protocols in place. With not with... just the safety thing, but good news like the restaurant cooking and says I don't want to throw away food. Right? Sure, sure, okay. But let, let's 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 take this on. What I'm coming to is the question of risk. Uh, uh, we've taken very very uh, um, severe measures, public health measures, a kind never ever be seen before in this country. Uh, measures that some of us would have thought would never get to the point of having to take, but are they proportionate to the risk? So, Fiona, ask, answer me this. Why is it that uh, with uh, less than 40 deaths in, in Australia since July 1, uh, we're in this very, very severe state of lockdown in, in large capital cities? Britain in that same period, 2,000 deaths over that same period, us, less than 40 of them, 2,000. But they've declared Freedom Day, they're opening up and, and, and the vaccine is part of the story, sure. But there have been 2,000 deaths and people have been prepared to uh, live with the danger at that point. 
Well, I think it's important, firstly, to say that, you know, um, if we didn't follow the health advice, what would the death rate be? Um, and not just focus on the actual death rate. So it's important that we've, we've all been working very hard to follow the health advice, and that's probably why we haven't had the death rate that we've had, that Australians have listened and followed the advice, generally speaking. I think the other thing is that, you know, we've had... Um, in recent times, we've had a, you know, an increase in uptake of vaccinations, which is important. We're working very hard right now to, to increase that. And I, I'm really happy to see that in my community in the inner west of Sydney that it, it's tracking consistent with the uh, at least just above the average of the New South Wales um, stats in vaccination rates. So that's improved and I think that's important. Um, look, I, I think that this has been a moment where we've all worked together and I think Australians should be proud of that. We've got very good committees and experts that we can rely upon as uh, decision makers. Our health minister doesn't make decisions on his own. He has, you know, the TGA, he has the, the Atagi, you know, expert medical committees. It's not just one person making these decisions. It's a whole government and not just one level of government, at least two levels of government involved. So it's about collaboration. It's about relying on expert advice and balancing that with the impact and welfare on Australians um, across across the country. So it's um, it's 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 not just an easy um, one person decision um, here. This is about um, teams of people, experts in this area, this area of infectious disease and relying on good data to inform decision making, not to make the decision for us. Data doesn't make the decision for us. It informs us on how to make decisions. And that's important. And everything gets weighed up. And certainly we don't want to be in lockdown unnecessarily, but this is about keeping, saving lives and keeping people alive. And I think that there's always, as I said from the beginning, it's been a delicate dance between um, keeping people alive, not having unnecessary deaths, but also to keep um, our, our nation moving. At some point, we will need to open up and we will need to live with COVID. In the UK, I think the 65% or around about vaccination rate was considered acceptable to have Freedom Day. In Australia, with our four phases, we're looking at around 70% before we ease lockdowns across the nation. Of course, in New South Wales, um, Premier Berejiklian is talking around 70 to 80%. Well, we'll see when we get closer to that, I think there will be a bit of room for negotiating, to be honest, because I think that I as, so. as we get nearer to what was good enough in the UK, um, it should be good enough in Australia as well. Pete, look, pick up this question for me of, 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 of trade-offs. You, you're in public policy. You used to work as a government advisor. You do this all the time with public policy you look at costs and benefits now the the benefits here are, are terrific we get those we can stop this wretched thing spreading our whole lives will be better and we, we prevent people getting dying or serious illness we get that but there's a cost we've talked a lot on this program about the cost to the economy but today we've highlighted and you in particular have highlighted that there's another huge cost to be played in, in terms of our mental well-being yeah, I mean, just to just to give you another uh, statistic before I comment more broadly, um, um, according to the government's own uh, researchers, the AIHW, who are charged by the federal government for monitoring 
mental health impacts during COVID. Uh, levels of uh, psychological distress amongst young people are up from 14% in 2017 to 22% now. That's 700,000 young people. That's more than Tasmania. So on to your question of, have we done the trade-offs correctly? Is the delicate dance being danced appropriately? Again, we have absolutely achieved important things in terms of reducing the number of transmissions by listening to precisely the people that Fiona nominated, to health experts, specifically to epidemiologists and public health experts. My concern is that in making those decisions for all of our society, for all of our economy, for all of our demographics, has government sufficiently listened to expert sociologists? Has government listened to expert psychologists? Has government listened to expert economists? And I would suggest that unfortunately, in the context of this groupthink and in the context of this univariate analysis that says the only number that matters is transmission up, transmission zero, those folks have been muted. And as a result of that, advice going to government is one dimensional and we're paying these excessive costs as a result. It is time now, as New South Wales has 360 extra cases today, for us to really question, are we going to double down on a lockdown that's not actually producing results? Or are we going to be smart and bring cultural communities into the room and bring psychologists into the room and design a strategy that's more targeted, more sophisticated? Last example, the suburb next door to me is Rydalmere. We have one active case. We're in full lockdown. Bronte has four and has no lockdown. Come on. Yes, let's follow the data. Uh, can I just jump into this because this is something very close to my heart. That while we're talking about policies and numbers, and I totally agree with you, Pete. I, as I said, I'm a very qualitative person, right? I think that we also have to take into account between the numbers, the figures, the stats, the, the medical thing, that is the, <clears throat> the actuality of the ex people's experience on the core front, on the ground. Like I was giving Nick the example, you know, when I heard that, oh, maybe Gladys might extend two weeks lockdown, right? I have IGA across the road in Taramara. And I said to my daughter, I better go across and grab some food and vegetables and all that kind of thing in case I'm stuck here. She said, no, mom, don't do that. I will order for you online. I said, the cabbage, by the time they reach me, will be bad. Right? She said, no, 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 you, you shouldn't go. Now, I'm saying that this fear is real for my daughter because we get things like, oh, you're in this age group and that age group, right? So the, the point I'm making is, yes, we, we need to get sociologists, we need to get ordinary people to say, you know what, like Fiona said, my grandmother is so resilient. She's 94, she's been through to Second World War, blah, blah, blah. I, I will probably go before she does. Can we tap into what goes into my, my Nana's head, right? Before I tap into just the, the 14 years old that is finding that they cannot get on the internet, they're so frustrated. We need to tap all generations who have lived through times worse than us, Nick. And what I'm saying is to just look at policy in isolation of people 
it's not going to work because the real people like my daughter are fearful. She won't even let me cross the street. Right? This is this is precisely my point. Is is what I am making a lot of noise about in you know whether it's in the Spectator or other places is that now's the time to treat people as citizens, not as subjects. As and, human beings, you know, whether and, they're citizens or not, right, Pete? <laughs> correct. And, and my concern about some of our lockdown approaches is they lack that humanity and they lack the reality and they're based solely on one piece of epidemiological data. Univariate analysis always fails. Well, look, that's, that's been a terrific conversation and, and we're running out of time. I might just go to you, Fiona, for the, for the last word and put you this thought. Um, we know how governments are inclined to respond at times like this, to respond to obviously concern in the community and real need in the community. Uh, they will respond very often by trying to throw money at the problem uh, to try and you know announce schemes, put... You know, fifty dollars million dollar scheme here, and a twenty. You know, you know how it is. Uh, and and Labour governments, I like to think, are a lot worse at this than coalition governments. But you know, Liberal governments are not immune to this. Uh, is that the answer? And you've worked in mental health. You're now in 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 government on the on the on the on the on the, on the government's benches. Is it a question of money, or is it that we just don't know or are not good enough? at spending the money we've got wisely in mental health? My definite answer to that is it's absolutely not about the money. It's it's about utilising what resources we have in a really smart way. Uh, we have a number of issues with our mental health system in Australia. One of them is the workforce. We have a limited number of people to be able to work in the mental health workforce. So it's about utilising them in the best way. And technology can be the answer to that in terms of being able to triage and assist. And certainly telehealth has been, you know, as we mentioned earlier, has been an important part in, in uh, assisting people during this period. But it's about using the money in, uh, wisely. And one way to do that is to invest in early intervention and prevention in the early years right from preschool and all the way through school, because that's where we can really prevent a lot of mental health issues and we can certainly build um, a more resilient nation. So early intervention and prevention is where it should be spent if it needs to be spent anywhere. And just streamlining our, our mental health system to make it less, you know, a lot of people describe it as being fragmented. So pulling it together and reforming it is important, but it's not just about spending money. We can definitely save money and we can certainly make it more efficient and more productive and we can save more lives if we reform it to work at its best. Saving lives and saving money. What an encouraging note on which to end this conversation. Or perhaps I should say conversation starter because I sense there's plenty more to learn and digest. Fiona Martin, Belinda Kong, Pete Smeagol, thank you for your contributions to this Mendes Research Centre Water Cooler Forum. You've been listening to another water cooler conversation brought to you by the Menzies Research Centre. We'd like to bring you many more, of course, and you can help us by subscribing from just $10 a month. Go to www.menziesrc.org slash subscribe. I'm Nick Cater, and thank you for listening. Music.